The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. The Enviro Show is with me, Nancy Richards, also with Rob Parkin and Kim Winter. And with you, and if you'd like to join us, uh, be part of the programme, you can do that. And uh, the number to call is 0892 10 2010. Well, let me tell you what we've got in uh, crammed into this next hour in the lineup. Going to start off with the SKA, which, as you certainly know, uh, they launched their first meerkat antennae in the heart of the Karoo today. The first uh, set of many to come, I understand, but what's the impact on the land? We're going to be talking briefly to meerkat project manager Willem Esterhazer. He has all the details. Then after that, wind, wind energy, the pros and cons of wind as an alternative, a renewable energy. We're talking to Johan Vandenberg, he's CEO of the South African Wind Energy Association. Also going to be talking to Tariro Kamuti, he's a PhD student at uh, the University of Free State, also a consultant with Consultancy Africa Intelligence. And uh, certainly you would be most welcome to join us on that one if you've got thoughts about wind energy, uh, pros and cons, give us a call. Well, wind energy may be one thing, but what about solar-powered? Solar-powered computer. It had to happen. It was only perhaps a matter of time. And the person who's done it is Megan Verkale. She is with Capsule Technologies, and she has come up with a solar-powered computer. Look forward to finding out all about that. Um, in fact, it's a, it's a 20-watt African Android computer, so just look at our facts. Absolutely right. And then in a new series that we're going to call Forage, we're going to be taking a look into the production, the provenance of different types of foodstuffs and starting tonight with mushrooms because life is too short not to talk about mushrooms. We're going to be talking to Peter de Kock of African Gourmet Mushrooms and if you fancy this idea of forage and there's a foodstuff that you'd particularly like to know the background to, let us know. Pop us a mail. We're at uh, enviro at safm.co.za. Find us on Facebook. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM. And then finally, in our green goodie for this evening, Earth Hour, and you certainly know that that's coming up, coming up this Saturday evening, and we'll find out how you can pledge your support. We'll be talking to Sue Northam of uh, the World Wildlife Fund. So that's what we got lined up, but uh, before we get cracking, we're going to find out all about the SKA. Well, we're going to find out what the SKA have been up to, and certainly if you're a listener to AM Live here on SAFM, you may have heard them chatting about it. They were right there where all the action was, because the first of the 64 antennae that will make up South Africa's new radio telescope, Meerkat, was officially launched by the uh, Minister of Science and Technology, Mr Derek Hanekom. What well, is part of the broader SKA project, something of which I think for our South Africa can be very proud, certainly in terms of science. So as I understand it, and I might have got it wrong, it's an array of 64 receptors connected by 170 kilometres of underground fibre optic cable. And this first cluster is 80 kilometres or so from the nearest town, Carnarvon. Willem, uh, Willem Esterhazer, Esterhazer is the Meerkat project manager. We've got him on the line. Hi, Willem. Hi. Perhaps you'd like to put me right. Have I got it right? 64 receptors, all part of one antenna? Yes, that's perfectly right. Okay, so we're 64 receptors, all part of the one antenna, connected by 170 kilometres of underground fibre optic cable. This has been a huge um, construction that we've been hearing about little by little over the last few years, but how long has it taken to get this far? Yeah, so, you know, if one sort of look back at the history a little bit, um, when we started out, we built a single antenna at Hartrow. Um I'm not going to go into any detail on that. 
Then, beginning 2008, we started with a seven antenna array in the career, so that's CAT7, which is a separate instru- instrument from Meerkat. The original intention with that was that it was just going to be you know, sort of a demonstration instrument, you know, um, fast to learn about radio astronomy and interferometry and so forth. Um, it turned out that uh, it actually became a pretty decent science instrument and it's being used by scientists now. Um, <clears throat> which is obviously great for us because, you know, you sort of establish your working relationship and data interface and so forth with your scientists that's eventually going to work on yeah, Meerkat. Yeah. Um, um, in terms of Meerkat, we started for design in beginning 2010. Uh, and <clears throat> today, as you know, we we inaugurated the first Meerkat antenna. Mm. Also, the infrastructure is pretty much done. So, you know, there's <clears throat> significant work that had to be done to get power to site do the power reticulation on site. You mentioned optical fiber, which essentially from all your antennas brings the signal back to a central location, um, roads, foundations, buildings, you know, both support buildings at um, a support base, as well as your shielded buildings, you know, for your correlator yeah, and so forth. Yeah, so a lot of infrastructure has been put in. The first antennas in, um, you know, so it was, <laughs> it was a fantastic yes. day. Um, I imagine you're going to sleep easily, more easily tonight. Well, congratulations on four years of extremely hard work that's been going on there. But, you know, just thinking of it from an environmental perspective, 170 uh, kilometres of underground fibre optics, it's been a huge thing. And all of the receptors are going to be managed from Cape Town or sort of operated mm-hmm. from Cape Town. It's 80 kilometres from the nearest town. Um, it, it's aptly named Meerkat, you know, like the little creatures who live there in the Karoo. But what what sort of impact is is it going to have on the earth? You know, it's it's not nothing that amount of construction. What is the what is the the main um, material that's been used, and to what extent might it impact on the creatures and all that's around it? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, obviously, with these sort of um, constructions, there's very strict guidelines in terms of environmental impact assessments that you that you have to do. Um, so, you know, that has, has all been done, and um, you know, we got the go the go ahead to to do the installation. And the radio telescope in general is a very you know, it's a very benign thing. Um, okay. It uh, you know, the, for example, to give you an idea of the first seven antennas that we installed. Um, at the time, <clears throat> the the farm was still being used for you know for sheep farming, um, and it didn't bother anybody, um, least of all the sheep in in the least. Um, and in fact, the, the sheep used the antennas for shade to lie under when it was pretty hot. Um, we, we have now bought out the um, the two farms because um, mm. you know we will be using quite a portion of that for the, the meerkat core. But you know, all the power cables, all the fiber optics is being buried, um, and you know, obviously it's not no impact. But um, you know that mm. um, that area is being reclaimed. Um, so it's it's a very benign installation, and it's it's got very little harmful impact on the environment. Yeah. The idea of it being shade for sheep, a very expensive shade for sheep. <laughs> Nonetheless, just the other question, and we're going to be talking about wind in a minute and lots of controversy about wind and wind turbines and aesthetics. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the meerkat is far away, and I believe that there are going to be quite a few thousand more, or certainly a couple of thousand more. This is just the first. Um, aesthetically speaking, is it? what do we feel about that? What uh, response has there been in that school? Yeah, no, 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 I've got to be careful. 
Um, it's it's not structures that's nearly as tall as as wind turbines. Mm. Um, so you know, in terms of aesthetics, it's certainly got got much less of a visual impact than what wind turbines have. Uh, and then you know, obviously um, you know, there's some interaction with with wind turbines. Um, if if wind turbines were to generate RFI, that would be a problem for us. Unfortunately, there's legislation in place. <coughs> R- um, in RFI? Order for the minister to prohibit that. Uh, RFI? Is that radio? Oh, sorry, yeah, that's radio frequency interference. Yeah. So, you know, that's, um, to, to give you an idea, we, we typically, with Mercat, interested in looking at the spectrum between about 500 megahertz up to about 15 uh, gigahertz. So, a cell phone typically works at 900 megahertz or 1.8 gigahertz. So, you know, those are frequency bands where there's very significant science to be done. <clears throat> so that would certainly have an impact on us. And then anything like microwaves and all, pretty much all electronics um, will, will have some sort of impact. So that is, that is then also obviously what makes the uh, fairly remote site in the Karua a, a good radio astronomy site is because there's low um, the population density. That means there's, there's you know, not that much electronics and stuff around and you know um <clears throat> it's fairly it's fairly far from the sort of major airline routes between Cape Town and Johannesburg so yeah it's 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 really a pretty good site which is i guess why they want to build the SKA there yeah yeah Absolutely. Um, super. Well, we're going to leave it at that, Willem. And as I say, you know, I'm sure you must be a very uh, relieved man this evening. Um, but actually, just before we let you go, I'm just going to ask you one more thing. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of debate around job creation. To what extent is this going to impact? I was reading an article in the paper this morning, I think, uh, by an environmental journalist who, who spoke to a few people um who spoke to a few people in uh, in and around Carnarvon, sort of uh, telling, te- you know, asking them what uh, impact it had on them. Has it had a lot of impact in terms of job creation? Yeah, I mean, it certainly had. Um, I think, first, let me sort of just respond to the broader South African um, context. Uh, you know, we've, we've got a very strongly developed human capital development program where we support <laughs> anything from technician level up to postdoctoral um, studies. We have in the last four or five years um, awarded in order of 590 bursaries for people to study further and the intention is to get especially young people <clears throat> interested and involved in careers in, in science and technology. Um, and obviously we can't absorb all of those but we do believe that the people that come out of those programs, be it on engineering or technician or whatever level, has got very solid hard skills <clears throat> that they can use and that that can make a difference in industry. Then, uh, you know, if you sort of go closer to home, um, you know, to Carnarvon, then uh, <clears throat> we're quite involved in the schools there. And we've established the cyber lab to you know, give the kids there opportunity to work on um, you know, computers, um, access to the internet so that they can can learn that way <clears throat> um, we had various or we have various programs for training technicians from the local community to eventually to, to later on you know, essentially become um, operators or you know technicians to support the and obviously that's a very long-term 
you know, sort of opportunities. Yeah. Um, and then also <clears throat> for all the contractors that do construction, um, contractually they are bound to also use local labor in their construction. Um, so, you know, those, <clears throat> depending on the contract and what is possible, you know, there's targets that are being written into the contract and they get audits on that and they have to, to um, achieve that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we do take our sort of broader South African responsibility, responsibility quite, seriously. Quite, yes. quite seriously, but also, you know, upliftment of the local community. Yeah. Just very lastly, long. you talk about long term. How long is the meerkat going to be on the planet? I mean, you know, can you project that far? And we're looking far back. Can we project far forward? Yeah. At what so, point will it need yeah. to be replaced? Yeah, so, so at the moment, um, you know, we projected Mercat will be done. Um, all, all hardware will be will be installed by the end of 2016. Um, it should be fully commissioned and the science ready by the end of 2017. Then we've pretty much got science cases um, allocated um, in the order of five years, which works out pretty well because we think that's when SKA1, um, which is another 190 dishes that gets built there, um, will come online, and then Mercat will be integrated with SKA phase one to form you know, the full SKA one. So yeah. <clears throat> and you know SKA phase one eventually will be integrated with SKA phase two. But even if it doesn't, I mean, it will be an instrument that that has a lifetime of you know thirty to fifty years. Yeah. So so Mirgat in its current form will have a very significant lifetime. Thirty to fifty years, at which point they'll be saying, you know, this is such old tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know by by that time I probably wouldn't care if they yeah. say that. So. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. It's all been very, very exciting, and I wish you every success for the next uh, 30 to 50 years. Lovely. Thank you very much. No Take care. Bye. Cheers. Philip Estehoza, and he's a Meerkat project manager, and what a busy man he's been over the last four years. If you want to find out a little bit more, check the site. It's uh, ska.ac.za, ska.ac.za. We'll try and put that up on our Facebook page so you can have a look at it effortlessly. We're talking of effortlessness, wind, I suppose all you want to do is stand in a in a windy corner and you know that the power of wind. Well, we're talking about the giant antennae and the great Karoo. Wind energy also means big structures, you heard me saying they're blighting the landscape, but at the same time bringing us lots of energy from a renewable source, which isn't really costing anybody anything. So just one each of the pros and cons, which is really what we're looking at next. We're looking at wind energy, the pros on con pros and cons. We're trying to get hold of Johan Vandenberg. He's with the South African Wind Energy Association. Unsuccessfully, no, nope, looks like we might even have him. But in the meantime, we are talking to Tariro Kamuti, who is a PhD uh, student in the Department of Geography at the UFS. He's also a consultant with the Consultancy Africa Intelligence Enviro Africa Research Unit. Uh, let's start with Tyrero. Hi, Tyrero. How are you, Nancy? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. So, are you coming out pro or con wind? What give us your take on wind energy pros and cons? What what, what what's your feeling? Okay. Uh, I mean, to start with uh, wind energy, I mean it's uh, renewable energy and it's clean. Right, those are the, most of the uh, major benefits of the uh, source of energy. Mm. But it also has to be taken into consideration with um, how it is going to be actually deployed uh, to actually uh, power houses and uh, uh, the various sort of, uh, sort of needs that uh, the energy has to serve. Because um, one of the challenges that wind actually has is that it is an intermittent uh, sort of, uh, source of mm. energy which means that there is a lot of um, so, so some irregularity in terms of uh, 
least production, uh, relating to some external factors, for instance, uh, when it comes to issues relating to wind speed and also the siting in terms of where the, uh, the wind turbine is actually going to be deployed. So at the end of the day, there is going to be some irregular sort of electricity supply uh, in such a way that uh, you can actually use um, wind energy as a sort of a base, what is known as a base load capacity, that mm. is, uh, the capacity with which uh, you can actually have um, continuous supply of electricity to meet minimum demand of all the users who are connected to an electricity uh, grid. And then the other challenge is also that uh, wind energy is non-storable, as for instance when you compare it with uh, hydro, yeah. where you can actually uh, store and actually uh, deploy uh, the, the, the energy in terms of uh, the demand. And as such, it also re- uh, results in a sort of uh, illegality in, in terms of supply of, uh, of, 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 the, of, of the energy. Mm. Yeah, but at the same time, um, studies have also shown that um, on average, uh, wind turbines also perform far below their capacity, mainly due to the intermittent nature of the wind, because it's not always constant. Uh, there's always uh, some variability in terms of uh, wind speed and also the power that is going to generate then. And as a result, um, it has been shown that it is not uncommon to have annual outputs of um, just around 15 to 30% of the maximum uh, turbine sort of uh, capacity. Yeah. Yes. And then when you also compare uh, uh, to what are known as capacity factors um, of other technologies in power generation, such as coal, uh, for instance, we talk about uh, capacity factor. We are looking at the actual uh, power output over a period of time as a fraction of the theoretical output um, if the plant is operated at maximum capacity. So, for instance, look at coal, it has got about 85%, natural gas, which has got 87%, uh, hydro with 52%, and um, wind energy at 34% actually mm-hmm. makes it very uh, uncompetitive when you, when you combine it on that basis with, other, with those other sources of energy. Yeah. So what it would mean is that... Um, there has to be some mechanisms in which you have to try to close the gap uh, in terms of the variability that um, we are talking about in terms of the regularity of the supply of, 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 of energy. Uh, in one, one way uh, in which that can actually be sort of, uh, uh, sort of ameliorated is um, by connecting uh, sort of like different and complementary energy sources to the grid so that it supplements or actually works together with uh, the, 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 the wind uh, sort of uh, energy. Um, and then also do it in such a way that deploy some, for instance, what they do in Europe, I mean, in terms of technological development, that the, the grid itself has to have um, a self-adjustment capacity. And so there are some, some um, kind of technologies which can actually be able to adjust in terms of the demand and the supply that will be coming from the uh, sources of uh, uh, the, the wind mm-hmm. energy. And then the other thing is also interconnecting, for instance, uh, various wind farms, okay, mm-hmm. so that they form an array, and uh, in such a way that uh, what it means is that the probability that all the sites experience the same wind sort of regime at the same time is actually reduced, and um, the network is going to behave like a single farm with dead wind speed, uh, which actually also ensures the uh, supply of uh, uh, wind power. 
So those are some of the things that also yeah. have to be taken into consideration. Yes, gosh, that's, that's, that's a really interesting list. Yeah. Um, and as I'm looking at the pros and cons, actually the cons and the challenges yes. are quite numerous uh, yeah, yeah, compared yes. to, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which is a pity. And the thing, a couple of things that you hadn't touched on are, are health and aesthetics, um, not to mention bird life. But I, I'm not going to add to the cons list any, any further at this stage. Okay. Um, Tarira, just hold that thought because we've got Johan van der Berg on the line. Uh, All right. I think the, the magic of wind has finally brought him to us. Hi, Johan. Okay. Hi, good evening. Hi. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Um, Johan, I don't know if you were able to hear all that Torero has just I said. I was. Yes, good, yes. You. Very interesting. Do you want to add to the list of pros? Well, I'd, I'd like to reframe um, what was said. Um, you know, I think factually what was said was largely correct, but, I, you know, I'd like to contextualize it just in another way. Um, we're not... You know, we're not starting to build an electricity system tomorrow. We're not sitting in a country with zero electricity system and trying to design a system from scratch. If that were the case, everything that was said would have been true. Um, but, you know, the situation is that we've got 45,000 megawatts of electricity installed in South Africa. Comparatively speaking, in world terms, that's huge electricity system that we have already and the vast majority of that electricity system is what is generally referred to as baseload power. Um, in a in modern economy, you have baseload power and you have renewable energy, and the two complement each other. We don't have that. We only have the, largely only have the baseload power. So the wonderful situation that puts us in is that we can add lots and lots and lots of renewables before we get to the point where other countries are now. And it really says that for the next 10 to 15 years, you can build all the wind farms and all the solar farms that you like, and then you can have the discussion we're having tonight. But up to that point, the variability of the wind farms are, is going to be largely irrelevant. Um, you know, then in, in terms of the capacity factors, um, that doesn't matter. Uh, you know, the capacity factors in South Africa will be at the moment at about 35%. So what happens is you build a wind farm and you know that over a 20-year period you will get X number of kilowatt hours out of this specific wind farm. And all that South Africa pays for is the electricity that's actually delivered because it's all paid with, it's all built with private money. Um, and the calculations are done in a way that takes account of, you know, how the wind will blow over a 20-year period and it's all averaged out. And then ultimately, you know, South Africa pays about 30% less for wind power than it will pay from the power that comes from the Madupi power station that ESCOM is presently constructing. Um, can, can I know, just interrupt that? The last thing I can, can add yeah, to that is on. that, yeah, sorry. No, carry on. Is that, you know, we build a wind farm, we start today, and in 18 months we commission it. Um, any other form of baseload power that we might want to add now is eight to ten years away. So if people think there's not enough electricity and they feel, you know, extra electricity would be a good thing, as most of us do, then renewables is where to look. I just wanted to ask you about the where you say it may be expensive, but it's all built with private money. Is that so? Do, do we not well, have... Well, it's, it's, it's not expensive. That's the first point. It is the cheapest form of bulk electricity available at present. So it's 30% cheaper than new coal power. Um, that's the starting point. The second thing is, yes, indeed, it's completely built with private money. Um, and, you know, typically in a wind farm, about 30% of money will be actually put up by a private investor and about 70% typically will be loan financed by a bank. 
And, you know, it's really the difference between buying a, a McDonald's shop or just buying a McDonald's burger. Uh, South Africa is only paying for the electricity, yeah. not for the, for the building uh, of the Are farm. you saying that the government, the state, has got no investment at all in wind farms? Um, there, is an, there is a wind farm being built by ESCOM at, mm. at present, a reason, you know, good-sized wind farm. But of all the wind being built in South Africa, you know, 90% plus is being built by private money completely. Okay. just want to come back to the point about capacity, um, you know, relative to coal, to gas, to hydro, wind capacity is very low compared to, you know, to the others. What has been done in, in other parts of the world? I mean, we could, you know, let's not compare apples with pears here, but at the same time, wind is wind. Is it Denmark, I think, is very big on wind energy? I'm sure in other countries they've been at this perhaps longer than we have. How do they cope with that, that sort of shortfall of capacity? Well, they, you know, I, you know, I just again be very careful how I phrase it because you know there's not a shortfall necessarily. There's not, you know, and if I can if I can explain explain it like again in another way, if you again I had to have two hamburger shops and the one cost you a huge amount of money. It was open 24 hours of the day, and the other one is only open for a lesser number of hours per day. But the one that's open for a shorter period produces cheaper hamburgers than the other one. Then you know the country is very comfortable with that, um, and that's and, and what was said before was we always need a source of power supply. We need something that can always be there. We've already got that, so now we're adding the additional green renewable component on top of that. And when it's there, we love it, you know, and because there's a geographical spread across the country, the wind always blows somewhere. So you know, there's about 25% of all the wind farms that you built that you know you're always going to get those studies have been done and on a good day you know germany now generates 100 percent of its power from renewable sources um, and on other days they add other things to the mix to make it all balance and and these are things that people are very well equipped to do internationally yeah yeah um Terry, do you want to respond to any of the things that johan said um i probably i didn't just add that um, there is a lot of potential in terms of uh, uh, wind energy uh, as compared to other sources of energy. And um, South Africa actually has so much potential in terms of uh, having the offshore sort of uh, wind sort of turbines being deployed around the coast. So it's one of those actually uh, pros that um, wind actually opposes uh, despite the fact that we have good challenges in terms of investment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It seems that wind has been, we've been talking about wind's potential for a very long time. Um, <laughs> you know, and we need to be realising it now. But if I could just ask both of you for, you know, these these three other things that nobody's mentioned, um, the health aspect, apparently living in close proximity to wind turbines can be quite damaging for people's hearing. Um, there's the question of aesthetics. I don't know if either of you want to go there. And the issue of bird life. Um, either of you have any take on that, Johan? I'm, I'm happy to answer all of those. Mm. Um, you know, every wind farm that gets built um, gets built only after an exhaustive environmental impact assessment that takes about 50 months and costs in excess of a million rand. And as an array of experts, you know, all the way from heritage to visual impact to um, birds to biodiversity. And if any of those um, raise a red flag, then very often the environmental impact assessment will not be approved. Um, you know, there are setback distances. Typically, you do not build a wind farm within a certain distance of an existing dwelling. So, you know, people aren't going to live next to a wind farm. It's just not going to happen. 
And in terms of birds specifically, yes, it's very much something that we are very cognizant of. Um, you know, and we work very closely with BirdLife South Africa and are good friends with them. And you know, we they see that um, you know birds will be of the first to suffer due to climate change. So renewable energy is very important to them, and we work together to make sure that the wind farm gets built where it's optimal and where there aren't any you know red dot species mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that nearby. I'm going to give out your, Johan, I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to know a little bit more about the Wind Energy Associations. It's SAWEA, it's S-A-W-E-A dot org dot Z-A, SAWEA dot org dot Z-A. But Taru, I just want to close with you. Um, you are a consultant with um, the uh, the Enviro unit of um, Consultancy Africa Intelligence. Do, do you give, I mean, oh, despite all that you've said, you know, the challenges, do you give wind the thumbs up? I mean, you mentioned there that it's full of potential. I mean, are you behind it as a consultant? Yes, yes, definitely. I would mm-hmm. go for it because, like, from what Yuan is actually saying, that uh, we already have the best load sort of capacity in the country, uh, which is derived from other sources of energy. So we have reached probably a stage in which um, some of those uh, renewable energy sources actually have to be explored. So in that respect actually complements uh, what is already there. So in most cases, you find out that in mid-income countries, that you have reached, reached their access, energy access goals, you find them actually starting to develop some of these technologies further to actually enhance um, uh, the environmental sustainability of, um, I mean, various energy sources and also trying to run away from those which have got some deleterious effects to the mm. environment. Well, it certainly sounds like, actually, despite all, we've got a bit of a thumbs up from both of you. So there you go. Mm. Thank you very much, Tariro Kamuti. Thank you very much. And he is with the Consultancy Africa Intelligence. If you'd like to know more about them, it's consultancyafrica.com. And once again, South African Wind Energy Association is SAWIA. Thanks very much to them both. Well, we're moving on from wind to sun. And uh, a solar computer, I guess, it's certainly one of those things that would have happened uh, at some stage along the line. You know, I'm not sure if you could power a laptop with wind. Now, that's something to think about, isn't it? But in terms of renewable energies, certainly I believe you can run a cell phone on solar power. But uh, a computer, I'm not so sure. Well, we, we've actually, as you probably heard there, just dropped the line to Megan Vakale. She's CEO of Capsule Technologies, and she's developed a 20-watt African Android computer, basically for the benefit of people who live off the grid or who don't have access to electricity. So it'll be interesting to hear a little bit more about that when we get her, which we shall do certainly. In fact, we've got her right now. So we've got you on the line, Megan. Hi. Hi, Nancy. Congratulations. Wow, thank you. And yeah. thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, no, it's absolutely wonderful, and you're doing great things. CEO of Capsule Technologies. Who are you at Capsule Technologies? Who? You asked me who I am? No, well, I'm asking who Capsule Technologies are. What, what is your sort of core, uh, core work? Excellent. Okay. We are a new startup. So the core focus is around IT training and development and professional services. We also um, do various other professional services and consultancy. One of our key focuses at the moment is a project that we submitted to the WDC 2014, Mm -hmm. and we were recognized as an official project for our 20W African Android computer. So the very thrust of what we are trying to do, and it's great listening to your show because something I never thought about and... um, focusing on the community around sustainability because it's myself as the business owner 
and the other partner in the business, he is the inventor, the person behind 20W. So what it is that, that we're trying to do is to communicate 20W and the, the Android computer right now, and that, that's the, the main focus, and then also joining that, that up to skills development around Android, um, low-consumption computers. Yeah, and just making computers accessible in areas where people would otherwise battle. So just explain to us the 20-watt African Android computer um, solar powered. That's what you know. That's the hook that we're all looking at. But how does it actually work then? Okay, so it was born out of an idea around the problem facing Africa. We're not just focusing on South Africa. We were inspired by lots of um, empirical research across Africa that uh, around the lack of infrastructure for under-resourced communities. A lot of people don't have electricity. We in, in the Western world and living in Cape Town and especially in South Africa, we're not very necessarily very mindful or understanding of the consumption that computers use. Currently, computers use between, on average, 200 watts to 800 watts. Our computer only uses a, the core processing unit that consumes 20 watts of electricity, and how I can quantify that, it uses a light bulb of electricity. So if you times that by all the computers and laptops, you'd imagine that that it uses less. It also has the capability to plug into a solar panel, so not a standalone solar panel, one that, that, you know, that you have in buildings. So ordinarily, you, you would actually have lots of these computers plugged into to the solar panel unit. And in fact, Something that we're trying to identify is our target market. Being a new company, we know what it is we're wanting to do. So that is around the low consumption. And then also, Nancy, are you there? Yes, yes. Right. No, okay. And the other component of this computer is around interconnecting communities. So communities in informal settlements where they don't have lots of, in, well, actually where they don't have Talk about urban poverty mm. on our doorstep, communities who don't have access to the internet or access to, to, to knowledge and information, for example. You can have someone farming the Northern Cape who might not have the infrastructure to support the, the, the communication mechanisms. You are also looking at the computer is not only just about low consumption, it's also about bringing um, connectivity to communities where there, there is no infrastructure. Yeah. It, it so absolutely feels like the way of the future. I'm wondering what, why it hasn't happened before. I mean, I can't believe that there you are from Mitchell's Plain with this groundbreaking idea. It, I suppose it's whether or not people have the will, and it seems that you have, you know, it's not just that you've come up with this product, but it also seems like you have the will to make this product work for the benefit of the people who need it. Uh, am I right? Are those two things very much hand in hand? Absolutely. Just to give you a, a bit of background, with, with this computer, we, we are not doctors, so we can't save people, whatever, but there's a very strong connection between poverty and the, the, the link between poverty and um, access to information. So the, the, the government's punting around technology and the growing youth in, in Africa. So whereas the rest of the world is aging, Africa's getting younger. So what constitutes that people, you know, you, you might 
um, ask yourself the question, maybe somebody might, might just want to have a toilet or access to running water. What we are saying is, if the government is saying that, and a lot of research suggests that people should, I mean, everything that we access, services, community services, hospitals, clinics, nurses and everything, people are connected. So what, what my concept um, was actually born out of why shouldn't people have the right to, to information in a te- technological revolution that, that's happening yeah, around us all yeah. the time. Just to also talk about um, the, the Android computer, Something I was I, I attended a partnership um, workshop today with the government where they brought the private sector together to build strategy. And something that really resonated with with me today was around Nancy. I'm losing my train of thought. Yeah. Now. <laughs> well, um, I tell you what. I tell you what. Let me let me bring you back because I, I can hear this. I can hear the sort of the the social aspect. But what yeah. I'm wanting to know is also is just coming back to the environmentally friendly aspect of it. Yes. I believe that the it has an eco-friendly motherboard to encourage the recycling of computer parts and the invention itself is estimated to cost only 3500 which I mean this is actually, an extraordinary yeah. Actually, we've managed to identify a South African company that is able to manufacture the electronic parts which is the CPU and we are looking at 2000 I mean 2000 and for, for our bill of materials. So that we are not making any money on this. It's just that we believe yeah. that um, if, if, you, if you're using the, the motherboard, which is a standalone computer, we're also working on the aesthetics because we're not just targeting one specific community. It should be for everyone. So there's a lot of, this is what I, thank you for bringing me back to my point earlier. There's a lot of um, sustainability initiatives that are happening. And today we've identified an organization that, is going to put us in touch with companies that are recycling their keyboards, their computer screens. So our device is, is the prototype that's already um, being piloted in places like Uguletu and some other informal settlements. So we will use the recycled um, and reclaimed parts. You know, our, our companies go through... Um, they, they kind of throw out the, the old computers, yeah, yeah. I mean old, i.e. Three, three or two years old. So we will use all of the um, screens and keyboards yeah. to plug in, into which, this. Which in itself device. is absolutely huge. I mean, when you think of how much e-junk there is that just gets, exactly. as you say, thrown out. My goodness, Megan, it sounds super, particularly interesting to know that the prototypes are already up and running. Um, sort of thing that I'm sure has triggered a lot of ideas for a lot of people. Uh, your website, capsule-sa.co.za. All the information there, if anybody wants to follow it up, find out more. Yes, yes. There is a tab called WDC 400. WD, oh yeah. WDC. It's, it's, it's a tab off the website. Um, it's great. Thank you for this opportunity because obviously um, trying to raise awareness and it's good to know that there are opportunities like this to to try and gauge people's buying because it's not just for one community. We should be looking at the environment. And we all have a duty of care to look after and care for our environment, especially with the energy crisis facing Africa. 
Absolutely an amen. Megan, thank you very much. Thank you, Nancy. Very best of luck with what sounds like a really great idea. Thank Take you care. so much for your support. Pleasure. Megan Vakale, well, what an interesting, interesting young lady there. Oh, imagine she's a young lady, whatever sort of age she is. Very interesting. Uh, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about that 20-watt African Android computer, capsule-sa.co.za, capsule-sa.co.za. That's the website, and we will put that up on our Facebook page too. Well, moving on to, um, in a minute, we're going to be hearing in our green goodie feature, we're going to be talking about Earth Hour, and that's happening on Saturday night, and we'll be finding out how you can pledge your support. But first, we have a brand new feature. We call it Forage. And in Forage, we're going to be looking at the inside or the backstory to different kinds of foods, how they grow, how they get produced. And if you'd like to know more about any particular food, you've always wondered how X was produced, like uh, spaghetti trees and that sort of thing, give us a call or pop us a mail. Uh, books, um, sorry, wrong show, enviro at safm.co.za. But we're going to start off tonight with the humble mushroom, or perhaps not so humble mushroom, because Peter de Kock is the founder of African Gourmet Mushrooms, and we have him on the line. Hi, Peter. Good evening, Nancy. How have you been? Excellent. And thank you very much for being part of our inaugural forage feature. Um, the humble mushroom I was describing it as, but you deal in gourmet mushrooms. So are you dealing in those sort of upmarket shiitake, all those different types of mushrooms? Where do you get your That's mushrooms? correct, yes. We uh, cultivate a number of them. Uh, worldwide, the, the principal exotic or gourmet mushroom is shiitake, uh, along with a lot of wild uh, mushrooms that are harvested uh, seasonally. And, of course, um, are highly sought after by the chefs um, for culinary specialities. Yes, in fact, I was at the Biscuit Mill here in Cape Town um, just earlier and I saw a, uh, I think they called themselves Funky Fungi, and, I, and the gentleman there was saying that this lot had been harvested from here and these had been picked from there. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of free food out there, but, I mean, you know, mushrooms, as we know, can be enormously expensive. How many of your mushrooms are you actually actively cultivating and how many are you harvesting in the wild? At the moment, I would, I would like to just put a little cautionary on this. The, the hunting of wild or gathering of wild mushrooms carries, of course, a dreadful penalty if you get it wrong. Mm. And there are it's many life. casualties and deaths and problems around harvesting poisonous mushrooms. So it's an activity that really must be done by people who know and understand exactly what they're, they're looking for. That's the, the, the negative. The plus side of it is that uh, your mushroom spores microscopic. So wherever they uh, drift on the Earth's face, you will find the same kind of species, north-south hemispheres, as long as they find an environment they're happy with. So off Table Mountain alone... We've harvested and sold uh, on occasion through places like the Biscuit Mill up to 13 different wild varieties of mushroom off, uh, off Table Mountain alone. Gosh, you have, to be, you have to be terribly careful what you say here on the radio. People will be beating a path up Table Mountain looking for good mushrooms because, you know, as you say, a cautionary, uh, cautionary note there. Um, the thing about mushrooms is that if you go to a supermarket, they're, they're really quite expensive. Um, and it seems like they, they should be available really quite reasonably. Are they very difficult, the ones that you're cultivating? Are they difficult to grow? 
The cultivated gourmet mushroom is a, is a really expensive process. It requires sterilized uh, substrates and bases as opposed to button mushrooms, your more conventional, mm. uh, better known varieties. Um, and therein lies a number of labs and fancy systems like HEPA-filtered air uh, and spawn laboratories, etc., etc. So it is a much more expensive process than pasteurizing uh, compost, which is really what buttons feed on. Because people can grow, I mean, there used to be something called, um, it was sort of like uh, bags or, or grow boxes of, of mushroom uh, compost that you could buy that already had the spore, spur, spawn, spots, spawn, spawn in it, um, and if you put them in a darkened place, they used to grow. Is it is it not possible for people to grow their own mushrooms? It still is, and there is a, an, an organisation in Port Elizabeth, I think, who sell uh, boxes currently with oyster mushrooms in them, the pink variety and the grey variety. Um, so that can still be done, and for the more adventurous, uh, oyster mushrooms are cultivatable reasonably easily. But unfortunately, your exotics uh, require a great deal more in terms of fancy environments and, of course, sterilised substrates. Mm. You know, for a lot of people, or even the ordinary button mushrooms are exotics in as much as they're really quite expensive. Nutritionally speaking, I mean, I know we're moving away from the environmental aspect here, uh, or maybe not, because uh, perhaps it's important, you know, um, how much nutrition you're going to get out of how much money you're spending and where you're growing these things. Nutritional value? Um, there's always a great debate that your common button mushroom has a great deal less um, in terms of proteins and fancy compounds. Uh, a shiitake mushroom, for example, has been recorded as being part of the uh, medicinal world of the Japanese for more than 2,000 years. And it has very widely tested at um, very sophisticated levels in America and Japan. Uh, immune-stimulating properties. There are proteins within the compounds of mushrooms. Um, probably one of the um, least known facts is that the Ganodermal reishi mushroom is a cancer uh, treatment and is, in fact, used by the big pharmaceutical companies called nutraceuticals uh, because it's easy to cultivate and it's very effective for certain types of cancer. Yeah. Um, what's their shelf life? Because I think dried mushrooms are also can be very tasty. Do they dry easily? And uh, you know the shelf life of a of a well, when you think of the the, the 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 foraging life of a mushroom, you know they can be here today, gone the next hour. Mm. How long do they last? Your better quality mushrooms that are cultivated and harvested and handled properly, temperature wise, will give you anything up to ten days, two weeks fresh. Um, your dried mushroom is more or less indefinite. And just as a, by way of interest, Utsi, the uh, Tyrolean uh, mummy that was found up in the glaciers in Austria, carried dried mushrooms in his pack on his back 30,000 years back. Gosh. Well, they certainly got a past. Do you think they've got a future? I'm certain they have a, a profound future. The protein content of some of the exotic mushrooms exceeds that of chicken. Mm. And it's pretty much the same amino acids. Um, shiitake, for example, has a protein content of about 18%. And that is more than sufficient to keep everybody healthy and happy. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot of the vitamin groups in it as well. 
And of course, it's flavorsome in, in the extreme. It dries beautifully. And if it's vacuum packed and dried, it probably have a shelf life of more or less three or four or five years. Gosh. We certainly have learned a whole lot more about the humble mushroom. Peter de Kock, thank you very much. Just lastly, do you supply uh, elsewhere other than Cape Town? Do you supply countrywide? Uh, not at this time. Mm. Um, we're very restricted to the Western Cape and, in fact, have a um, direct link with the biscuit mill and its outlets. Um, and we're hoping to expand as soon as I can attract the attention of the financing agents of government. Uh, through a job creation program that was started in Danoon and in Worcester mm. um, for the growing of mushrooms in little micro-enterprises that are sustainable. Now that is an interesting idea. If anybody would like to know more, perhaps can I give out your uh, email address? Yes, with mm, pleasure. Super. Peter de Kock, thank you very much. Nancy, thank you. Pleasure. Peter de Kock, African Gourmet Mushrooms. Well, if you'd like to know a little bit more about the job creation um, micro-mushroom growing... Pop him an email. He's peterdk at mweb.co.za. That's peterdk at mweb.co.za. Well, finally, here on the Enviro Show, we would be unforgivably uh, chastised, or we would be certainly chastised if we were not to tell you anything at all about Earth Hour, which is coming up this Saturday night between 8 and 9 o'clock, when, as you probably know, you're supposed to turn off your lights in support of the planet. Well, somebody who's definitely in support of the planet is Sue Northam. She's with the WWF, I think. Hi, Sue. Hello, Hello Nancy. Yes, hi. Yes, you're with WWF, SA? I am, yes. So the Worldwide Fund for Nature are behind Earth Hour, and they actually started it in, in 2007, so it was eight years ago. Yes, yeah. gosh. It's, uh, you know, it certainly captures people's imagination because it's something, it's kind of fun, you know, for an hour you can turn everything off and, you know, everybody can sort of ooh mm. and ah. Has it grown in, in sort of uh, awareness? Is it, is it doing what it was intended to do, do you think? I think it is. Um, in, in many ways, I think it's um, what a lot of people often don't, um, you know, the hour itself is very fun. What a lot of people often don't realize is that it was actually always intended as a symbolic switch off. Yes, so the hour itself is kind of that moment of, of awareness and reflecting on, on our, all the sort of the going forward. But as you said, it's a lot about the, the fun as well, because there's something very powerful about darkness and, and sort of having that moment of a candlelight braai or a candlelit dinner or, you know, something fun in the moment as well. Yes, yeah. yes, those who have easy access to electricity, it might be fun for them. Those who don't, I suppose, have got nothing to switch off. But it's it's not just about lights, is it about switching off everything and anything you can lay your hands on? Or are we actually using up more energy by turning everything off and turning it back on again? Yeah, well, I mean, as I, as I said, it really is a symbolic switch off. Mm. But, it's, you know, we, we sort of say switch off non-essential lights. And it's become, over the years, a lot more around the general awareness of, you know, unplug your cell phone charges and, you know, really consider your impact on the planet. And, and that's across energy and also around food and, and also our water impact. So it's also a lot wider than just energy, even though that's kind of where, where a lot of the focus has always been because of the symbolic switch above the lights. But, um, yeah, it's very much a, it, it, it's do what you can, start where you are, and, and have fun in the hour. Yeah, and just, just think about it, I suppose, above all. I had an email today saying, suggesting that I submit my pledge to protect yes. the planet. Is there a website that you can go to? to there is, Nancy, yes. So, so this year we're um, sort of under the theme of how do you honour the earth, which mm. is very much the sentiment behind why we do the, sort of the, the symbolic hour. 
There's a website which is earthhour.org.za, and we're calling on everyone to make a promise to the earth. And that's very much, you know, for some people that might just be switching off your lights, for others that there's all sorts of promises that have been pouring in, and it's, it's actually quite delightful to see what people are promising. Some people are going sort of all out and, and doing sort of uh, two or three meat-free, meat-free evenings uh, a week. Other people are promising to pick up litter when they go for walks in the mountains. Some people are being more sort of philosophical and, you know, looking to enjoy nature more. So it's, it's whatever it means to you. So to visit that platform, we're looking for people to go and make their promises and, and then read what other people have, um, have pledged. Mm. Mm. I, so, I, you know, we talk about it being symbolic and, and it's, you know, it's kind of sort of romantic, the idea of making a pledge and all these things maybe don't add up to anything. But, you know, protecting the environment is all about switching your mind, isn't it? Shifting your mind. Absolutely. And I, yeah. I guess this is really where it's going. And one of the things that we, we need to do is encourage uh, kids. Have you had, I mean, I don't know if you know how old yeah. the people are who are pledging, but is it is it appealing to young I mean, children? Yeah, it's funny you actually ask, ask that. We have done um, we have done some schools outreach and, and uh, in sort of pockets of things. And the wonderful thing about Earth Hour is while the, the Worldwide Fund for Nature is sort of behind it, people take it on in their own capacity. There's a woman in, in Durban who... She basically has been doing schools outreach and she's been to, I think, seven or eight schools by now as just purely her own passion project. And she's taken on all the content and we've, you know, sort of sent her a T-shirt and she's been going out there and really just speaking to the kids about the importance of, of being more conscious of our lifestyles and our impact on the planet. So things like that, then those kids have, uh, some of them have posted their promises. We've actually a few from uh, a school in, in, in Joburg and they've actually all posted the name of the school when they're making their pledge. So you can specifically, if you scroll through some of the promises, you can mm. see what's coming through. So there are definitely a variety um, of, of sort of, you know, kids and adults and, and all the rest, but there definitely are a few schools. We've Also on the back end, we've had contact with schools where tomorrow is the, the last day of school for a lot of, a lot of these schools. So a lot of people are doing something in their assemblies and they're doing sort of an earth fire awareness um, Weinberg Girls in Cape Town, the junior school, actually just contacted us to say that they're going to be doing a, an all-day electricity switch-off, which I just thought is really sweet um, to see how yeah. people are choosing to implement, even if it's not in the hour, because it really is about owning it beyond the hour for ourselves. Yeah, like the idea yeah. of remembering the earth in your prayers. You know, dear God, please look after yeah, the yeah. earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, you were saying earlier about... Um, does it have, you know, the sort of the impact and so on? Well, a lot of the promises on the site have come from a lot of sort of organizations and, and retailers and those sort of, you know, bigger bigger um, levels where they, 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 there is the ability to have more impact. So I think it's important to know that as individuals, we, we can take actions and our small actions all do have, you know, an impact, whether it's on our electricity yeah. bill or it's actually just, you know, knowing that if we collectively do enough it does add up but then there's also a lot of um, organizations who are really putting their their promises out there. absolutely showing a bit of leadership so we're going to leave it at that but thank you very much and enjoy your dark hour your darkest thank hour you so much. on yes, saturday night 8:30 on saturday to 9:30, and there's also lots of lovely events on the website at earth hour today thanks nancy lovely take care earthhour.org.za well i think uh, thank you very much to kim winter and rob parker and i think somebody's going to pull the plug on me um up in johannesburg stephen kirk standing by sorry stephen done it again no, i'm locked into it's all such interesting stuff as always uh, in the enviro show thank you very much uh, nancy